And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, April 28th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, senior executives like the latest return to the office plans, plus a deep look at how government can promote resilience down to the local level. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Energy Department's Inspector General says it's overwhelmed. The IG office can't keep up its oversight with the amount of money Congress has appropriated over the last few years. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me with why Energy's IG is not alone. But Jason, let's start with the Energy Department. Why is the IG struggling with oversight? Is it money? Energy received a huge budget increase from Congress because of four laws that Congress passed over the last year. The Infrastructure Investment Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS bill, and of course they got about a billion dollars for solar projects in Puerto Rico. That all being told, Energy's total budget went from just about over $44 billion in 2022 to more than, you ready for this, Tom, $478 billion in 2023. Now, that, not all of that is budget, so a lot of that is grant authority, too, but basically their their portfolio has risen by 10 times. It makes now, me want that, to start an electric bus company. At the very least, get yourself a Tesla, Tom. Yeah, you know right. you want one. 10 of them. All that money goes through programs or grants, and there's now there's more than 70 new programs and grants that have at least new or at least untested internal controls. Now, Terry Donaldson is Energy Department's IG. She says the money's moving very quickly, including $62 billion is out the door or the subject of potential funding opportunities. And that does create a host of new risks. So I noted when I took over this job a little over four years ago, the volume of reports all concluding that the Department of Energy lacked appropriate resources for oversight. And essentially all of those included the department acknowledging that it lacked appropriate resources for oversight. So it is against that landscape that all of this new money is now going to be distributed. The Department of Energy received in the IIJA a cap for most of the IIJA programs of only 3% for oversight, a little more flexibility in IRA, which is positive. Uh, But I would point out that those oversight numbers are largely utilized to move the money out the door because they're classified as administrative expenses, most of which are to help the programs get money out the door. Only a small percentage will actually be for oversight which is making sure that the funds landed where Congress intended them to land. Energy's IG Terry Donaldson says her shop is dramatically under-resourced to conduct this oversight already, and and adding hundreds of billions of dollars more only makes things a lot harder. All of these new funds came along, and now my shop is so dramatically under-resourced that I feel compelled to mention this any (laughs) time that I'm on the Hill. So my shop received zero additional funding Uh, in connection with uh, the CHIPS Act, zero additional funding in connection with the $1 billion for Puerto Rico, and we received only small numbers in connection with IIJA and IRA. It's something that will make it very difficult for us to conduct the audits, inspections, and investigations that are going to be so needed as we turn the corner into spending these massive amounts of money. I always say that uh, all of the coordination and planning in the world, and we are doing a lot of that right now. We've had over 27 meetings with the department since IIJA passed. But all of the coordinating and the planning in the world is not a substitute for people. 
You have to have the money to conduct oversight. Donaldson actually did some research, Tom. This is really fascinating. You can find this. I have a link to it on federalnewsnetwork.com. But when you look at the 24 CFO Act agencies, civilian side, the Energy Department's IG office is budgeted third smallest, only ahead of the Social Security Administration and the Education Department. And again, all this money come in, not a lot of money for oversight. Yeah, you'd think Congress or somebody would get it by now when they are still confronted with the amount of fraud from the pandemic various programs. They're still assessing that. And now there's, like you say, a half a trillion dollars more coming for handing out. What are the IGs and the other agencies facing? Is this kind of a common problem for those oversight offices? The other IGs who testified from similar science-based agencies, they're facing challenges, but not to the extent of energy. Sean O'Donnell, the IG at the Environmental Protection Agency, says their agency received about $100 billion through both the Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act. He says Congress did give EPA some dedicated funding for oversight under the infrastructure bill, but not with the Inflation Reduction Act. Additionally, EPA's Office of uh, IG continues to recover from a decade of flat or reduced funding. The IIJA gave the EPA $60 billion. Most of that is going through familiar funding mechanisms like the state revolving funds. And so what we see are capacity issues at both the distribution and the recipients. Uh, But the IRA gave the EPA over $40 billion for entirely new programs that are going to entirely new recipients. And unfortunately for us, I think the biggest risk is uh, Congress didn't fund oversight of this. And I gave one example recently of of the Environmental um, Justice Office, which went from 12 components of about $12 million to now one component with $3 billion. I'm going to steal a term from Terry uh, Donaldson. That's faster money to newer recipients, and for we are, we are very concerned about that and, and, and the ability to do effective oversight of it. EPA's IG, Sean O'Donnell, also says EPA, the agency at large, also supports the reprogramming of funds to help with oversight. Now, all this, Tom, is nice, but there's still a lot of money coming in and that, that EPA is struggling to really get their heads around. The other IGs from the National Science Foundation, NASA, and the Transportation Department didn't specifically mention staffing or resource shortages. But again, if you look at Energy's data that they put out about funding for IGs, EPA and transportation are fourth and sixth, respectively, among all CFO Act agencies among the civilians. And NSF is still higher than energy as well. So they seem to be treated better than at least the Energy Department has over the years. You know, it's amazing. I mean, members of Congress sit through the presentations on the higher risk list. They hear and read GAO reports every year about the unsustainable fiscal condition of the United States. The appropriations go up every year. You would think it's a no-brainer to be able to track the money and make sure the oversight is there. But that's just me. What did the House Science Committee members themselves say about IG staff funding and all that? Unfortunately for these IGs, not a whole lot. They didn't really offer any real solutions. And I think part of that reason, Tom, is I think they didn't really understand the problem as much or or understand the concerns the IGs are facing to oversee all this money to get out the door. You know, Tom, we've seen a lot of hearings over the years, over the last six months or so, about waste, fraud, and abuse. But even subcommittee chairman Jay Obernati, he says he was unaware of energy's funding challenges for its IG. A couple things I think have become clear to me as a result of this discussion. You know, number one, perhaps there's an additional metric we ought to be looking at to figure out whether or not our inspector generals are adequately funded based on the amount of activity that they have to oversee. Uh, And also, I think that we here in Congress need to be more mindful uh, when we are awarding grant funding of making sure that we simultaneously award your offices the relatively modest in comparison amount of money that you need to conduct oversight of that funding. Again, California Republican Congressman Jay Obernody. 
All right. There's the staffing issue. How else are inspectors general overseeing the tens of billions of dollars that are being allocated to these agencies, all this new money? Not surprisingly, Tom, beyond people, there's technology, always plays a big role. And then there's interagency collaboration, if you will, the sharing of best practices. Again, Energy's Donaldson says there are several ongoing actions to fight against fraud. We've launched a large-scale data acquisition and monitoring project, which will generate leads for audits and inspections. We've had approximately 30 meetings with the department. Uh, We're not allowed to consult or advise, but we ask a ton of questions, a lot of them about the 71 new programs. So we're actively in the coordinating and planning. Uh, Mr. Soskin and I chair the group of inspectors general that received funding under IIJA, so we meet every month with the other inspectors general, share best practices. So we're doing everything that we can given our underfunded status. I think one of the other problems that Energy is facing, Donaldson says, is her data analytics platform capabilities are still very in the early stages, so she's trying to build those up over time. Over at EPA, O'Donnell says they're relying on data and the merging of databases more broadly. He says the biggest challenge is pulling that disparate data from those databases. A recent study found EPA uses 55 different databases to pull information from 100 grant programs. Obviously, Tom, when you have all those different disparate databases, it's hard to get your head around. Where is that data? How do I pull it together? Where do I get it from? And I think that's also another big problem. Well, not only that, I'll bet you half those databases are spreadsheets. They probably are Excel spreadsheets or some sort of Lotus <laughs> One Two Three. Remember, yep. to tag back to the 1990s. The other thing O'Donnell says that he's doing at EPA is encouraging more whistleblowers actually to come forward as they see potential or real problems. He reinvigorated an award program for whistleblowers and initiated a forthcoming program for, uh, at the EPA OIG office that will actually financially reward EPA employees to blow the whistle on waste, fraud, and abuse. Those are just a few of the highlights that came from it. There's other things going on, of course, across the IG community and. Of course, Tom, there's a whole big push around data and analytics from the Pandemic Recovery and Accountability Committee, the PRAC. Uh, A lot of people want to see that expanded more broadly across the entire government. Sure. Maybe there's a chat GPT application that'll take care of the whole thing. You can only hope there's AI and ML in there somewhere. I'm sure that's coming. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a deep look at how the government can promote resilience down to the local level. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. No one can predict when disaster will occur, but organizations, whether government or private, can control how well they respond. That's all about risk mitigation and resilience. Thinkers at the Center for Strategic and International Studies have pondered how the federal government can help state and local governments improve resilience in what CSIS calls four connected areas, workforce, climate security, supply chains, and cybersecurity. Here with more... CSIS Senior Advisor Suzanne Spaulding. Suzanne, good to have you back. Great to be back, Tom. And we should begin by saying your contribution to this was your cyber expertise, having run CISA and having worked in the federal government on the cybersecurity side for some time. You kind of concentrated on that particular issue, correct? That's right. All right. Tell us, what are the issues at the state and local level such that the federal government could do some good there? You know, the first thing we did, and I I should note, as you did, that the report itself on resilience covers, in addition to cyber resilience, uh, there's a section on supply chain resilience, on climate change, with a particular focus on an impact on energy, 
And then running through all of them, but also given its own section there, is workforce resilience, which is clearly a thread that pulls across all three of those and upon which their resilience depends. And as you say, I focused on the cyber resilience piece, and we had to start, all of us working on this report, by getting our arms around what is meant by resilience, because it's used so often now and often is used interchangeably with security. Um, But as you pointed out, Tom, in your introduction, resilience is really about how do you reduce the consequences when the things you've done to try to secure your network have failed and that bad actor has exploited a vulnerability and has the potential to cause some significant consequences, not just to your network, importantly, but to the functions that that network enables, right? So to your business, if you're in business, or to your mission essential functions, if you're in government. And so resilience is about what are the plans you have in place to reduce those consequences. Fair to say this first came to light in a national way when I think it was four or five years ago that Baltimore was hit with a cyber attack such that most municipal functions actually ceased. And it was a few months before they could even, you know, get building permits back going again, transfers of property, the basic functions people turn to a city to do. We're seeing this in cities and towns all across the country. And so, yes, there is a growing recognition that we spend a lot of time in cyber conversations talking about how to deter and prevent the threat, how to reduce our vulnerabilities. Those are important. We don't spend nearly enough time talking about how are we going to reduce the consequences in a world in which we know there's no 100% guarantee of security. You have to assume in your planning that that bad actor is going to get in with their malware and you're going to be in a ransomware situation. And now what are the plans and the processes and the things you have in place to be able to operate in a degraded fashion, to be able to continue to provide essential goods and services? And the federal government can play a role there in helping both within the federal government to increase its own resilience, but also to help those state, local, territorial and tribal governments and businesses. And what are some of the top line things that governments, agencies, any kind of organization serving the public needs to have in its toolbox for resilience? Yeah, so you need to have that continuity of operations planning, continuity of business planning. And that requires that you bring in not just your IT people, but your full team, your operational folks, your communications folks, your financial folks, your billing folks, right? All of those people who are essential to your business need to be part of that planning because they're the ones who are going to have the insights both into the consequences, but also into the ways in which you can mitigate those consequences. I often say that, you know, your IT people, as brilliant as they may be, Um, really are probably in no better shape to tell you about the impact on your business or your mission essential functions of a successful cyber attack than an electrician is to tell you the impact on your business if the power goes out. We're speaking with Suzanne Spaulding, Senior Advisor for Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It sounds almost as if, in some cases, you need to keep paper backup. Yep, they need to think about analog solutions in many instances to this very technical threat that we face and risk that we face. And the federal government can help in a number of ways. Congress, first of all, can provide adequate funding for the kind of analysis that we need that, for example, the National Risk Management Center at my old shop at DHS, now called CISA, um, the work that they do to understand consequences, understand interdependencies, 
and the prospect for cascading consequences, and which are the functions that, if disrupted, would have the greatest impact. That's essential for prioritization. We need Congress to, when it's passing something like the Infrastructure Act, to rebuild our infrastructure across this country and update and upgrade our infrastructure, to provide the funding needed to build in resilience. We talk about secure by design. We should be thinking about resilience by design as well. So those are things that the government can do. We can provide, CISA can provide templates for that planning. Who needs to be involved? Here's the checklist. Here's how you do that continuity of operation planning. And sector-specific agencies can do the same and provide analysis on understanding consequences. And one of the connected factors in the report was the supply chain. And increasingly, cybersecurity is a function of supply chain security. Fair to say? Absolutely. And the supply chain section is outstanding. Breaks down what are the various categories of threats to the supply chain, uh, which is a great analytic tool for trying to get your arms around it. And then some very interesting practical suggestions for how we might build greater resilience in the supply chain, including things like having digital twins as a kind of backup for a supply chain disruption, and even something called a digital seed bank. And that is what exactly? Well, if you think about the traditional concept of a seed bank, if plants become extinct, right, that we've saved some seeds, to have a third party, perhaps repository, right, of critical digital components and software, et cetera, so that if that supply chain is disrupted, we can go to that seed bank. And that might allow, for example, for domestic production of the needed digital tools and components. Right. So you almost need to keep those artifacts, which gets to the issue of backup and recovery itself. Is that, I wonder, becoming a bit of a lost art as people presume their cloud providers will take care of all of that? Well, and one of the key things that folks need to think about in the context of backups, I often, I work with a lot of companies and I often ask them, do you have all your data backed up? Oh yeah, we've got it backed up. Have you ever tried to use that backed up data? Well, no. And that is a challenge. That is something that that is not automatic or easy. And so companies need to not only know they have secure backup that is in fact completely separate and distinct from their network so that it is fully backed up, Two, that they have exercised using that backed up data. So backups are important, but you can't assume the, uh, that you've got that taken care of. Exercise it. Even if your backup is in the cloud, exercise using periodically on a regular basis. Use your backup data. Right, sure. And just to make sure the old bag of flour is still fresh, I guess, if you're going to make a cake. And this report now is extensive. It's long, and it covers those four areas. A lot of people at CSIS worked on it. What happens to it now? How do you make it not just another Washington report? Well, we did have a rollout event, and I would encourage folks who want to see the great conversations with outside experts we brought in to discuss this, go to CSIS.org. We are briefing the government, uh, elements of the government, on the report and having conversations about how it applies to the work that they're doing. And I'm out talking to businesses all the time about the importance of resilience, um, have long before this report and will continue to do so. Suzanne Spaulding is Senior Advisor for Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive.
Hear the Federal Drive On Demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the White House's IT plan means more money for the Technology Modernization Fund. But first, senior executives like the latest return to the office plans. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Senior executives say they're okay with the latest White House return to the office guidance. The Office of Management and Budget issued the guidance a couple of weeks ago. It emphasizes what it calls organizational health and calls for a lot of data gathering. We get one perspective from the chairman of the Senior Executives Association, Marcus Hill. Mr. Hill, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. How are you? All right. And so the SEA kind of likes what has come out from the Office of Management and Budget. It seems to offer a way to both telework and get people back in the office if needed. Yes, we were pleased that uh, OMB decided to uh, really emphasize a data-driven approach to determining or assessing uh, uh, agency organizational health and performance. And uh, we're, we're hopeful as they continue to work with agencies to develop their work environment plans that they will literally work closer with agencies and various stakeholders to help develop those plans. So we were definitely pleased that they emphasized a data-driven approach. However, we were not as pleased with their lack of stakeholder engagement up front in developing uh, these plans. So it kind of just came out and then go ahead and go at it type of feeling. Yes, because most of these agencies, Tom, as you know, have been working diligently on these reentry plans for a while since we started migrating back to sort of a pre-pandemic norm. So I think that OMB, in our opinion, sort of reacted based on President Biden's and the Congress's ending of the uh, national emergency uh, responding to the COVID pandemic. Obviously, uh, telework has been a centerpiece of that politically with the desire to return, uh, I think, as many employees back to the workplace as possible. But we just like to encourage OMB and those working on these plans not to necessarily reset to a pre-pandemic mindset, but to take those lessons learned from the pandemic to hopefully expand the use of telework and remote work. And, of course, your own federal career was in large measure in law enforcement and law enforcement training. People in federal law enforcement, and there's probably 60 or so units of law enforcement throughout the federal government, they necessarily are on location wherever they happen to be. Those are not office jobs. And do you sense that there's, maybe not, tension between those that by virtue of the type of work need to be at work, as we classically understand it, and those that can telework because it's all computer type of stuff. You know, we haven't heard that concern from our constituents. I think that most of them understand that there are certain positions that require an in-person presence of the majority of the time, but there are a lot of support positions that are um, probably best performed in a telework situation or remote work situation. And so we're just advocating that OMB and OPM and others uh, within the administration really take an opportunity to um, evaluate the positives as well as those improvement opportunities associated with telework, remote work under the auspices of organizational performance and health and really move us forward because we believe that the pandemic basically accelerated uh, some of these workplace of the future initiatives, which we've had the opportunity to test drive for about three years now. 
And so I think there are probably lots of studies that are in place that will share the data that will help these agencies make informed decisions. Right. I think the need for remote work also accelerated the technological developments that are needed to support it because they were pretty primitive, some of these tools at the outset. And by a couple of years in and now two or three years later, they're pretty good. Absolutely. And what we're doing today is a demonstration of that. Right. Yes, we are on a call by a commercial platform that does video conferencing and reasonably good sound. And you do sound good from your home in a distant state from where I am. And by the way, we are speaking with Marcus Hill. He is chairman of the Senior Executives Association, retired SESer himself. And this idea of organizational health, what does that mean precisely? I mean, there are measures you can look at, like the best places to work rankings and other results in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, how many people leave versus the percentage that stick around. What, in your experience, are good measures of organizational health? That's kind of a nebulous word. Yeah, I think the federal government relies on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey to really gauge organizational health by evaluating the survey results um, that uh, I think they, they conduct that survey on an annual basis. So I think uh, that's a, a great key indicator as it relates to those areas within that survey that draw upon obtaining feedback from the workforce in terms of how they're feeling about certain things, uh, their ability to accomplish the mission, the evaluation of their performance by their supervisors and so forth. So I think that it's definitely great to obviously keep your finger on the pulse of your organizational health because uh, obviously if it's not in good stead, these agencies are at risk of not really being able to accomplish their missions. And I want to make one point. So during the pandemic, obviously, we were challenged. Uh, We had to pivot hard to go to this uh, telework and remote work environment. So I'd just like to really highlight the fact that uh, and my understanding is no, no missions fail. None of these agency missions fail as a result of pivoting to a, a more robust telework and, and remote work environment. So, uh, again, we just need to continue to uh, move forward in terms of evaluating those lessons and really applying those things where they make sense to apply. Right. If you look at, say, the SBA, which, you know, is in a little bit of hot water for the amount of pandemic loans that turned out to be fraudulent or will never be paid back. The low-end estimate is $60 billion. But that's not a result of having people telework. It's a result of whatever controls they didn't have in place, just as an example of where telework itself didn't seem to cause any degradation of, of services. Absolutely. And we've heard a a couple of examples recently uh, from some of our constituents regarding their experience with the Social Security Administration and not necessarily um, uh, being able to access the the customer support that they feel is relevant in terms of really responding to their claims and so forth. And we don't believe that that's a telework issue. It's a staffing issue. In this case, I think that the technology certainly exists to assist um, with uh, bolstering customer service. But literally, I think this telework remote work would be advantageous to help recruit and retain customer service workers such as those working at the Social Security Administration. And is your sense of who should make these decisions about the levels of telework, who should telework and who needs to be in the office, the questions about organizational health, those will fall to the senior executives in your feeling versus the political appointees who may be gone by the time something is even evaluated for an agency. 
Absolutely. These career leaders are charged with ensuring the continuity of their agencies uh, as we move through the various uh, political administrations. So they're in the best place to make these decisions. I think that um, by and large, most of them are, if not all of them, are focused on making sure that they can deliver to the American people every day the services that the, the taxpayers are paying for. And again, um, just the magnanimous job these agencies did through the pandemic in terms of being able to sustain their uh, missions is commendable. And so my hope moving forward is that the administration, OMB, OPM, you know, really, um, I understand they, they realize that, but take the opportunity to award these leaders by making them an inclusive part of the decision-making up front as it relates to certain memos like the one we just saw released from OMB. That's how you get buy-in, I guess. Marcus Hill is chairman of the Senior Executives Association, also a retired SES member himself. Thanks so much for joining me, as always. Tom, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with the association statement at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the White House's IT plan means more money for the Technology Modernization Fund. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Biden administration expects to spend about $400 million over the next two years through the Technology Modernization Fund. The White House is seeking to replenish that fund with another $200 million for fiscal 2024. Claire Martirana is the Federal Chief Information Officer and Chairwoman of the Technology Modernization Fund Board. Raylene Young is the Executive Director of the TMF. They tell Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how these investments are part of a larger effort to accelerate agency IT modernizing. First to hear from Claire Martirana. We focus on trying to understand where agencies are on their IT modernization journey and make the right investments through annual appropriations process, which is really the critical part of this. But TMF is really supplemental to that annual process and helping put agencies on the right road to building, you know, a durable, secure foundation. And it's really a key, as you know, Jason, to digital modernization and transformation. So I'd I'd say starting with making sure we understand where each agency is on their IT modernization journey, and then really making sure that we are focusing both on how we can be a catalytic change agent in partnership with that annual appropriation process. And and Raylene, you might have some additional thoughts on this. I totally agree with uh, kind of that idea of really thinking about how we complement the annual appropriations process. Uh, But also, I would say with the TMF, we're really aiming to try to strike that balance between the agency's demand for funding, which typically just outpaces available resources, I would say, in any year. um, But what's uh, balancing that with what's achievable and realistic in a constrained kind of overall budget environment. Um, I'd say if you look back at all the TMF budget requests over the past five years, uh, the 2024 request is quite in line with those and I think reflects the importance of, of these funds. And we're really pleased to receive congressional support for $50 million in this year's omnibus. So we believe that the next year's request is, is quite critical to keep pace with the scale and number of investments that we're making today in the fund. I think with additional funding, we'll be able to meet you know, significant demand and kind of and continue investing in some really complex uh, government wide IT modernization efforts as well at the same time as we scale operations um, and continue growing. 
Can you talk a little bit about your conversations or the conversations you hope to have with members of Congress? Because they have always, whether the login.gov issue came up now or, or it's always been a, a challenge to kind of get them to see the value uh, and to continue to appropriate money. What kind of conversations are you having with Congress to ensure they continue to understand the value? And, and what are you doing either differently or, or new in 2023 and beyond? As you know, you know, the last two years receiving this historic investment from the American Rescue Plan of a billion dollars really changed the way that we operate TMF. You know, the investment rate has increased tenfold. The fund is constantly looking for new projects to invest in. But it's really important to remember, and we remember as board members, that our customers are the constituents of members of Congress. And we are constantly in communication with every investment that we make. I know that Raylene can add a little bit more color to this, but we work really closely with our congressional colleagues to make sure that we are showing the features, the benefits, you know, learning from uh, lessons of certain investments and scaling that learning across our whole portfolio. But I think, Raylene, maybe you can touch on how we interact with Congress on a frequent basis. I would say something that's actually always been true for the TMF is we provide detailed and regular spend plans to our congressional committees. Uh, We really try to outline proactively what's happening in each investment round, what, what actually happens when different investments either wrap up or kind of up, get updates or sort of show progress along the way. Um, so I think that's a pretty unique aspect of the program. And at this point, um, almost on a monthly or every other monthly base, basis, we've been able to kind of give these refreshed um, updates in written form, but also have done regular briefings um, with our committees as well. So definitely here to engage and help answer questions and help shine a light on uh, the great impact of these um, investments that we're making. There is a lot of hesitation from agencies whether or not they want to apply for TMF. Uh, do you get a sense that that as over the last few years, agencies not only are more comfortable with uh, applying for funding and asking for potential loans, but they're, they're, they're better at what makes a good investment and why? Talk about that growth. It has been really clear that there's demand, right? There, There's absolutely no question based on the numbers Raylene shared that IT modernization, cybersecurity, customer experience, and legacy IT issues challenge every single federal agency. So TMF under the American Rescue Plan and with our historic $1 billion investment has really changed how agencies think about TMF. And when we were able to change our repayment model from 100% repayment to some flexibility for agencies that had very specific needs, it really had agencies leaning forward and leaning into TMF where they might not have previously. And Raylene, from the uh, on the ground perspective, what are you seeing maybe differently as agencies are submitting their proposals? I know you all work very closely with them. How have those proposals also evolved over the last you know couple of years? I think something you mentioned around working just really closely with agencies. I think that's also been a big change in the last few years. We've meaningfully grown the the TMF program. We've um, you know expanded the board and added new members and obviously added subject matter experts to the team. So that's given us just an increased ability to engage quite early and often with agencies who are interested in the TMF. One concrete example is previously agencies would, you know, submit a proposal and it would go to the board and they'd have to go through this um, kind of full process right away. But uh, over the last year, we introduced a new process that 
enables agencies to get started in a very lightweight, quick way where sometimes they can take only 15 minutes and submit some basic information and get hands-on advice and support from the PMO, um, which enables them to kind of really engage more deeply on the work and, and have a great, you know, kind of discussions and conversation with the board. And roughly how big is the board today or the program management office, I should say, and what kind of subject matter experts have you brought in over the last you know, year or so? We know cyber, customer experience and the like, but maybe if you could go to the next level down of where they're focused on or how they're helping agencies get better with their proposals. I'll let Claire actually highlight some of the great skill sets from the board, but on the team, on the program management office's side, you know, you mentioned CX, you mentioned cybersecurity. I would just say we provide a kind of general technical support, helping agencies take a more agile approach to their uh, modernization plans. Um, And that's been a really big focus is just looking at how to break down the projects, ensure that incremental impact is achieved um, as they embark on their projects. And I guess I would just add on the board side, you know, we really have a very well-rounded board that are used to managing the complexities in the federal environment from, you know, procurement, the the challenges uh, we often have with um, making sure that we have the contracting vehicles in place, the staff able to work on the program, the leadership support. So making sure that we're not as um, IT executives building something and hoping everyone will come, making sure that these projects are thinking dynamically about the change management, not digitizing bureaucracy, really re-interrogating their entire business process in an agile way with human-centered support to make sure that we are shipping the most important and complete projects on time with uh, milestones that are previously identified and we manage our funding to those milestones. So I think the board uh, has really focused on adding those types of evaluations to our um, process. Claire Martorana, Federal Chief Information Officer and Chair of the Technology Modernization Fund Board. And you also heard Raylene Young, the Executive Director of the TMF. Speaking with the Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO. Subscribe at federalnewsnetwork.com. Mold in Army Barracks. It's an enduring health and morale problem. Now two soldiers invented a solution to preventing mold in the first place. They won an Army Innovation Award. Now the Army is testing their solution in barracks. It uses Internet of Things technology. For details, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore spoke with Dragon's Lair 8 award winners, Army First Lieutenant Chris Alaperti and Private Sal Ez. Generally, companies will use these types of like IoT solutions to indicate, is there a door open? Is something failing in the HVAC unit? Is a temperature off for this reason, uh, this, that, and the third? The temperature and humidity is just a really good place to start. And so we looked at commercial solutions. Uh, think of a, a Google Nest thermostat, something along those lines. Very expensive, not customizable to our exact use case, and not always backwards compatible with some of the Army infrastructure. So since we had recently established this innovation center here, at the time it hired uh, Sal, our lead software engineer, we decided to try to build something ourselves so that we would have control. We could get it to customize to the way that our specific users at Fort Stewart would want to use it and then could design it in a way that's scalable and compatible with all the Army infrastructure. Okay, so then what happened? Between October and January, we started whiteboarding out some designs. Uh, We 
worked with our current partner at the Innovation Center, the Civil Military Innovation Institute, uh, where we're able to procure funding for prototypes of ideas that soldiers have. So that enabled us to build the first prototype of MCAT, which were 27 sensors that went across uh, nine different barracks rooms. So the way it's set up is there's one hub, as we called it in the room, which has a little screen on it that'll display the reading from three different sensors that are placed in what were identified as kind of hot spots in the room for mold growth. These sensors communicate back to the hub. The hub uses the Wi-Fi that the commercial Wi-Fi that's av available in the barracks that soldiers use for, you know, Xbox or play on their computer. It uh, leverages that network to talk back to a website that Sal developed. You developed all this hardware, all the software, and this website that now exists uh, where anybody can go on from their personal advice, log on and see the active temperature and humidity conditions in that room. Uh, so in less than three months, we're able to get that out into nine barracks rooms. We learned some lessons from the first batch and recently did a full redesign and made 144 of this version two sensor hub combination that we have and are currently rolling it out into an entire building in our second brigade, hoping to get it in there and get some feedback before they deploy in a few months. After you got the award, you started the beta testing with the nine, nine rooms with three sensors in a room. Is that right? So no, that was all before. Yeah. So it was actually before the competition came up kind of adjacent to us working on it. So we were doing this uh, regardless of if there was a competition, we saw how much worth the division was putting into trying to take care of soldiers, trying to improve their lifestyle, the living conditions in the barracks. And we're just trying to, to do our part with it. And it just happened that it was at a, a good level of development to present at a competition like this. We had a couple slides made already that we used to present to people when they come to the innovation center and threw something together and submitted for this competition. At the time of the competition, we had just finished building all 144 of the version two sensors and we're just starting to roll it out into the barracks for this larger beta test. Uh, went there, did the competition. And then since then we've been continuing to roll that out. Who measures, who looks on the website and checks the humidity in the, in the different rooms that you're using? So ideally, the, there's kind of two sets of users of it, or three. It could be the soldier living in the room. They can be proactive and fix it without it ever elevating outside of the room. They may be unaware of the conditions. They can say, why is it hot and humid? Oh, it's because I duct tape over my vent because I didn't like the noise. Fix the problem right there. The non-commissioned officers in our formation, so the soldiers, team leaders, squad leaders, platoon sergeants, first sergeants, are the ones generally responsible for the direct welfare of the soldiers. So they would be going and doing physical inspections of the barracks rooms daily, weekly. Uh, this now allows them to multiple times a day access it from their phone and go do more pointed inspections when they notice an issue. Then when we started working with DPW, that's kind of the third user of this, uh, they have dedicated mold teams that have been going around and remediating these mold problems as soon as they occur, the team can now access this app in the morning and kind of triage their work for the day and go take a look at the rooms that are out of tolerance. What did you make with a, with a 3D printer? Inside of these are the actual you know, hardware components. So Sal designed all of this, and then we needed something nice to put it in. Our makerspace manager who works for the Civil Military Innovation Institute designed these cases that properly house all the hardware and allow us to just keep it protected from soldiers and attach it to walls in the barracks. So are there three of those little boxes in each room or does that box have three sensors in it? Nope. So there's three of these sensors and then these run on a battery. 
So these can run for up to a year. We designed them that way, figuring that a, a major use case of this will be when a unit deploys. There's less people around to inspect each room. So they need kind of all the, all the help they can get. We don't want soldiers coming back from doing their job overseas to nine months to not living in perfect conditions. So this uh, will allow a team to you know, monitor for hopefully the entire nine months up to a year. And there's three of these around the room. Depending on the different configurations of the barracks, they're in different places. There's four or five different models of barracks on Fort Stewart and Hunter Army Airfield. Uh, but generally, you know, one by the door, one in the middle of the room, one near the bathroom is kind of how it's laid out. And then this hub would be plugged into the wall, displaying on the screen the readings from these different sensors. And then this is actually connected to the internet to communicate back to the app. And then how does the battery get charged? So the battery can be recharged by being plugged in. could also be charged off of the hub. And you could also remove the battery. You can open it up. And if you have a pre-charged battery, you can replace it too that way. So you got options. So if a soldier's on a long-term deployment, will someone go into their room to check the battery? If necessary. Again, ideally it'll last for a year. So we assume at least a majority of the batteries will perform the way they should and they won't have to go in and get changed. But on the, the app, it'll give you a low battery indicator. So the way we program that, you should still have multiple weeks after the low battery comes up. But if it's worked into the DPW workflow or whoever's going to be managing these barracks while they're gone, to be checking the app every morning and seeing which rooms are in the kind of danger zone for mold, they can also go in and quickly recharge those batteries. It should only take a, a couple hours of being plugged in to re- fully recharge those batteries. How did the two of you start working together on this project? Lieutenant Al Purdy? We're both infantrymen by trade. So I was an infantry platoon leader in one of the battalions here with the engineering background. So I got to get pulled up and, and start this. And then you want to say the program you did? Yeah. So um, I uh, essentially got sort of scouted into this program where I was essentially kind of outsourced to a JSOC Joint Special Operations Command for after doing three months of training with a with a private company and then developing applications with them for six months. And then I essentially had to repay about a year or so uh, amount of time to either back to the division or to the core at Fort Bragg. And so I just came here to pay back the all the training I got and whatnot. Private as what was the training you got specifically? So I did three months of direct actual like software training with a company called Galvanize out of uh, Colorado online. And then following that, I uh, did a sort of internship with uh, JSOC. And did you have a software background before you joined the army? Uh, yes, I did. So like all the hardware stuff uh, came from like just hobbyist type stuff uh, before joining. Um, I, I did study it a little bit uh, as well as on the software side. Really all the hardware stuff just came from from stuff I knew before joining. But a lot of the integrated, more advanced software stuff came after uh, utilizing it within the Army. Lieutenant Alperti, how about you? What was your background? So I don't have any uh, formal software training at all. I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical and aerospace engineering and a master's in biomedical engineering. Kind of just generic engineering knowledge and project management. This is 99% Sal's work. Just happens uh, in our lab here and it's become one of our, our bigger projects. Terrific. And so moving forward, how many rooms do you have sensors in now? So when all 144 of those sensors are out, it'll be 36 rooms, a full building in 2nd Brigade. About half of those are equipped right now. 
And those are all barracks and, rooms. Yeah, those are all barracks rooms. Yes, ma'am. There's no reason why this can't eventually be put in housing, you know, any barracks on the installation or any barracks across the army, really. The most pointed application we saw was the barracks rooms. The soldiers that are out there doing the hard work every day deserve to have the best living conditions. And we saw much work the the rest of the division was putting into trying to correct this problem. So that's kind of the first batch of uh, rollouts we're trying to do. Do you have any idea how much each sensor unit costs? Yeah, so these are still prototypes. So they're all built off of this components you can buy on Amazon. All in, they cost about... 15 and $20 respectively. What we're working on right now is redesigning it in a way where it's it's all one compact circuit board. So instead of having various components that we had soldiers in here welding them together or soldering them together by hand, it'll be scaled and manufacturable. At that point, it should cost more in the neighborhood of $10 per sensor. So are you all going to go uh, apply for a patent on this? Um, There's talks. Yeah, we're working through some of the Army systems for that right now. We uh, have to submit an IP review through, I believe it's Army Futures Command. We're we're slowly working on, we're trying to you know, get it to a point where we know it's the final product before we, we do all that paperwork. Army First Lieutenant Chris Alaperti and Private Salem Ez speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 